My name is Jeff Shipman. I'm a Christian, a husband, a father, and a small businessman. I like to say it in that order, though I often feel much more defined by my work and my responsibilities than by much else. Uh, I grew up right here in North Gore, had a good childhood, one for nothing, and I was brought up with a pretty standard set of Western values in regards to morality and how to behave. I wasn't raised in a Christian family, and I knew pretty much nothing of God until in my late 30s. When I first came to open my heart to Christ, as he was saving me from the ravages of alcoholism, and from the hell of living entirely according to my own will. Eventually I was blessed to have my eyes open to the gospel, in no small measure by the presence of this church. I was baptized in this church not so many years ago. Really though, it was through the youth ministry of this church where I saw such positive changes occurring in my own child that I was drawn to step through these doors. It was because of this church's community outreach and the loving kindness of the pastors and of you, brothers and sisters, that I began to see what Christ looks like. That said, let me be clear about how I feel uh, standing in front of you today. Obviously, I'm more than a bit nervous. I'm no public speaker and I'm certainly not a shining example of what a godly man should be or how one should behave. Just ask my angelic wife, Arlene. <laughs> But for the love of Christ, I have no standing to lecture anyone on topics of faith and morals. I struggle daily with my own sin and defects of character, which, by the grace of God, become more and more apparent to me every day. So hopefully that qualifies me. The, sign, the shine you see coming off the top of my head certainly isn't a halo. How I came to be here. In view of the rather dismal reports on church finances, I thought perhaps I should try to help. A few weeks ago, at the end of the sermon, I felt moved to say to Dan, hey, if you ever want anybody to get up and say a few words in generosity, I'll give it a whirl. Emphasis on a few words. <laughs> God had put a few things in my heart related to my own generosity, and I was thinking perhaps I could offer up a couple minutes of pleading with you all to help improve church finances. I was thinking maybe five minutes tops. One of the things I had in mind to tell you was always about my troubles with cigarettes and my numerous attempts with various degrees of success to get them out of my life. For lack of a better way to say it, I was going to try to appropriate God's blessings to finally defeat my addiction once for all by redirecting the money I spend on smokes to the collection plate. And I wanted to share with you my hopeful expectation that God would do something with that. Anyway, when I opened my big mouth, Dan immediately said, it's a sermon then. <laughs> of course, I thought he was joking. Apparently he was not. So thanks for that, Dan. <laughs> By the way, I'm still going to quit cigarettes, and I'm still going to donate that additional money to the church. Amen. And I ask that you hold me accountable, brother, at least for the smoking part, since I know you don't look at the individual amounts that you're contributing to the church. But I bet you're doing the math in your head right now. Okay, let's see. That's a pack of smokes a day? How much is a pack? Okay, times seven, times four. That's up. No, really, folks, I think it's a great idea, and I encourage anyone else to try it with your own dad and preferably expensive habits. You know who you are. 
But in all seriousness, I'm really grateful for your confidence, Dan, and I'm honored to be up here. I hope that it might say something useful this morning. So I guess I'm here to give a rather longer talk on the subject of generosity. Please bear with me. Very little of what I have to say represents original thinking. I borrowed heavily from internet sources and from authors. But it all represents what I believe and how I feel on the subject. I'd like to start by mentioning that while a lot of what I have to say is general in nature, I'm particularly concerned with church finances, so you should do everything I have to say in that context as well. As a businessman, I look at church revenue versus expenses, and I'm concerned. Though it appears to be fairly close to budget, it's a modest budget, and we're having trouble meeting our most basic obligations. In short, we're barely keeping up with a modest plan for our church. I'd say we're not prospering financially. I'm not here to throw rocks, only to point out the facts as I see them. I'm as responsible for the state of affairs as anyone. I've often heard that the financial health of the church reflects its spiritual health. Though the financial health of this church is not prospering, I'm not sure I agree with that statement because I know many of you and I'm humbled by your faith and by your love. And I truly feel the least of you in this way. Many of you are the same people who sat in those pews more than 10 years ago when I was baptized. When I last stood up here before you and awkwardly confessed my desire to repent of my sinful ways and to follow Christ. I'll never forget how graciously and how honestly it was received by all of you. What got me here, though, was the outstretched hand of the church, which would not have been possible had it not been giving you money to the church to support and pay the bills. I couldn't appreciate that at the time, but I sure do now. Moving forward, I still feel blessed to be counted amongst you, to love each other in Christ, and to have Dan and Wendy leading the way. You guys are such a great team, and I, I love you here. I give to this church because I'm sure that through it we're doing God's work. Charity applies to all aspects of life, of course, but I feel that when I'm giving money to this church, I can be confident that it will be used in a prayerful and godly manner. I know I'm doing something for the kingdom, and that I'm somehow helping to fulfill Christ's great commission, where he says to make disciples of all nations. Suffice it to say, the church deserves more. I know we all want to see disciple-making prosperous and exciting church. And I know in my own heart that I should be more myself. So my thesis today is twofold. One, it's very hard to give away your money. No surprise to that. To some extent, greed and selfishness play a part in that. They're subtle and they're insidious. I think that they may act in ways in our lives which we're unwilling to acknowledge and afraid to admit. Two, it's only by the grace of God that we can do it. The actual ability to give away our treasure is an amazing, indescribable gift of God's grace. Now, I don't imagine that any of us consider ourselves to be greedy individuals. After all, we work hard for our income. We're all subject to the government taking at least half of it by force. We all love Jesus, and we all support the church in many different ways. Money, time, fellowship, etc. We're all faced with bills to pay, that's clear, and we hope to someday have enough set aside to retire and to live into old age comfortably and with dignity, without being a burden on our children or others. Seems like quite ordinary and reasonable propositions. 
So let's look a little bit at greed and selfishness, the opposite of generosity. First off, I'd like to repeat again that greed and selfishness, or the biblical term covetousness, call it whatever you like, we all know what it means and we're all innocent of it. These are extremely subtle and insidious. None of us are likely to think that the term selfishness or greed apply to us. Relatively speaking, I know it's much easier to acknowledge my own sin in respect to anger, envy, pride, or even lust. But greed? Lack of generosity? No way. I've got that one, Nick. I wonder how often, Pastor, and this is a rhetorical question, do you minister to someone concerned or upset about their materials and greed as opposed to, say, lust and gluttony, anger, envy, or pride? Have we ever had accountability partners or small groups focused on materialism, greed, and selfishness? I think that most of us can recognize at least some of those other deadly sins in ourselves and we prayerfully try to overcome them. But greed? How often does that one come up in prayer? And how often do we pray that our desires for possession, security, and comfort are eclipsed by our desire to give them away? Myself, probably never. Again, I think it's safe to say that none of us think we're doing it. It's in our nature to want a certain amount of comfort and security for ourselves and for our families. It's in our nature to be concerned about our financial futures. And believe it or not, it's also in our nature to love ourselves, by which I mean to want the good for ourselves. Given the anonymous nature of church giving, we have very little by which to gauge our offerings. It seems that there is no feedback or common discussion as to what is good or what is poor when it comes to the dollars and cents of church giving. And that's probably how it should be. We don't talk about the amounts we give for fear of putting stumbling blocks in others' way, or for fear of being boastful, or for fear of our offerings appearing small in comparison to someone else. Pastors, I think, have the real fear of appearing to be after your money with a Sunday morning stick-up. If I'm hoping for recognition for my donations, I'm probably not going to get it. And again, that's how it should be. It's not really generosity if I'm looking for recognition in return, is it? Humility is a source of generosity, not the other way around. Lord knows in the past I've taken upon myself to personally hand over a check or two to the pastor that I thought was particularly juicy. With one hand, all the while patting myself on the back for my generosity with the other. The gift is truly in the given, folks. This is the main theme of my talk today, and I want to pass along to you the hope that this gives me. Often we hear about a tithe or a tenth of our income as a biblical guide for giving. And if you're tithing, as I know some of you do, I thank God for your faith. Let's have a look at uh, Malachi 3, 8 to 10. This is God speaking. Will a mere mortal rob God, yet you rob him? But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings, you're under a curse, your whole nation, because we're robbing you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in the house. Test me on this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store Now, I don't know how to respond to this, really, other than to say that what stands out for me are the phrases, test me, and robbing me. Test me on this, God says. And we know that this appears to be the only place in the, Bible, in the Bible where he says such a thing, so it's got to be something special. How are we to do that? 
is a tithe what God expects from us? Or is it some sort of benchmark at which you might receive his special blessings? For many of us, a tenth of our income is just too much to be reasonable. Or for others, could it be too little? For myself, I know that giving a tenth would be difficult, taking a large measure of faith and hope to achieve. But is that tenth measured before taxes or after taxes? Or is it a tenth of disposable income? Can we subtract what we give to other charities? I really don't know the answers, and I think in view of Christ, these types of questions may be missing the point altogether. It occurs to me that a tenth could affect some people greatly, while others might not even notice it. This seems odd to me, and it doesn't seem to line up with passages in the New Testament, such as 2 Corinthians, where Paul says that each of us should give what we have decided in our hearts to give without compulsion or regret. All I can say here is that I personally feel I've always been blessed, even materially blessed, even materially blessed when I've had the faith and courage to give sacrificially with a grateful heart. And I'm quite confident of that. The really cool part of this is that when I give like that, it doesn't feel like a burden or a duty. It, it feels like an adventure. Parting with money is still a fearful and painful thing to do. Do you know how God measures generosity? I think we might have a clue in the story of the poor widow. Luke 21. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasure. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave her gifts out of their wealth, and she of her poverty put in all she had to live on. I don't think a biblical view of generosity is measured by the amount we give or a percentage of our income. I think it's measured by our sacrifice. I've heard it said in the Gospels that in the Gospels, Jesus talks more about greed and materialism than any other sin. In fact, I'm told that it weighs lust by a factor of 10 to 1. It must be a big one. Yet greed is a sin I'd probably be least willing to acknowledge in myself and even less willing to admit. Again, I say greed and selfishness are subtle and insidious because no one thinks of themselves they're doing it. Yet it's so easy to point to in the world, isn't it? You know, even as a child, long before I knew Jesus, I knew his famous phrase is adapted by the secular world. It's better to give than to receive. Actually, it's more blessed to give than receive, but close enough. I always felt that he was that this was speaking about the nice feelings that resulted from giving a present or something like that. But in Christ, I think it's so much more than this. It's interesting to note that nowhere in the Gospels do we have a direct quote from Jesus saying it's more blessed to give. Rather, it's attributed, by, it's attributed to Christ by Paul in Acts 20. Let me set this passage up for you. As I understand it, Paul was leaving the Ephesians after a lengthy period of living amongst them and ministering to them. He knows he's never going to see his brothers and sisters again. He knows he's probably going to be arrested and possibly killed in the near future. Acts 
However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying the good news of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among who have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim, to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, shepherds of the church of God, which he has bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning you. Each night and day with tears. So Paul is admonishing them to keep watch over themselves and their prisoners, warning them to be shepherds of the church. That savage wolves will come amongst them. Be on guard. Even from amongst them, the enemy will be at work. Paul says he's never stopped warning night and day. Continuing on, then, here are the next and final words that Paul has to say at the end of his farewell discourse to the Ephesian elders. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine are supplied by my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I get, I show you that by this kind of hard work we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. No, I will never see them again, and truly concerned that they remember his teaching and the godly example he set for them, think that Paul would be saving the most important things for last. Telling him of the, the things he sees as most urgent to remember. Those things most important to watch out for. So following all the warnings in verses 22 to 31, here are the two main things he's finishing up with. One, remember the gospel, the word of grace. And two, live lives of radical generosity. Is it possible that because Paul knows that greed and selfishness are so subtle and insidious that his final words to the Ephesians are a reminder to be generous and that generosity itself is a blessing? Is it because of our inability to recognize and acknowledge our greed and selfishness that he's doing this? After all, he didn't mention lust, gluttony, sloth, wrath, envy, or pride in his final words. I mean, if greed and selfishness are not even on the radar for most of us professional Christians, why do we see it here as Paul's very last instructions and admonishments to the Ephesian elders? Jesus summed up the commandments of God as follows in Matthew 22. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest command. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law of the prophets hang on these two commands. In regards to loving your neighbor as yourself, as I've already explained, I think that loving yourself is analogous with wanting the good for yourself. It's really generosity toward yourself. Those things like security, comfort, freedom, and love. Some days I don't even like myself, but it sure doesn't mean that I want to see myself unloved, alone, destitute, or weak, or suffering. 
Our natural instinct is to always be generous towards ourselves in that sense. So Jesus is calling us to be generous to our neighbor in the same way. To me, this is, this is a really radical concept. The calling to be generous, loving our neighbor, is an amazing gift of grace and seems to be second only to our ability to love God himself. Security, comfort, loves, and desires, these are our treasures. When they reside in Christ, we're compelled to be generous. We can't help it. However, to the extent that we're controlled by our earthly treasures, money, possessions, reputation, financial security, etc., we, we won't be able to give away and be generous with our money. Let's look at Jesus' words in Luke 12. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been blessed to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not worry. A treasure in heaven that will never fail. For no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So I've got to ask myself, where's my treasure? Of course, it's easy for me to say, it's in Christ. But I think that a fair answer to that question requires a little closer look into my life in my heart. Here's a list of questions I've found which are meant to help us consider where our treasure might lay. These are called X-ray questions adapted from Dr. David Paulson, a noted Christian scholar in biblical counseling and psychology. There are no answers, only questions. We're really meant to consider them and honestly answer them for ourselves. So here they are. What do you love? What do you hate? What would bring you the most happiness, the most misery? What do you seek for, aim, or pursue? Where do you bank your hopes? What do you fear? What do you worry about? What do you need? Whom must you please? Whose opinion of you counts most? What do you think about most, most often? What or whom do you trust? What do you want out of life? And what payoff do you seek from the things you do? I believe that in my own flesh, I'm enslaved by my earthly treasures. It's not really the money itself, it's what the money represents, freedom, security, self-worth, etc. I love how Tim Keller puts this in referring to our treasure. He says, it's what you find it easy to spend your money on. See, we all treasure certain things in this world, and typically it's easy to spend our money on. Think about it. What do you find it easiest to do with your money? For some of us, maybe it's retirement savings. For others, maybe clothes or appearances, fast cars in their way. Or a collection, or a certain hobby. Maybe you pride yourself on your frugality, so you are in control of life. Money's not a treasure, it's only a means to an end. But it can sure point us to where our treasure is. In a recent discussion involving the state of the world, politics and greed, I was struck when a gentleman said to me, money is the root of all evil. Being a secular man, he didn't realize he was directly quoting from the Bible, however obviously. I responded, no, I think it's the love of money that's the root of all evil. He disagreed in the strongest fashion, pointing out what he saw as corporate greed, government greed, and even institutional religious greed, as if money itself was the cause of the problem not the hearts of mankind. Let's look at 1 Timothy 6. Oh, right ahead of me right there. 
But godliness with contentment is great pain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people, even for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. I think it's important to remember that everything belongs to God in the first place. We're simply giving a bit of it back. The gospel makes it clear that we're stewards of his riches here on earth, not owners. And in all honesty, I find that hard to swallow. I, I work pretty hard for my treasure. But consider this. If we're owners of our wealth, then in our selfish and greedy natures and actions, these would represent failures in character or in judgment. But if we are stewards of God's riches, then in our greed and selfishness, we are robbing from them, as suggested in Malachi 3. To quote the wonderful author C.S. Lewis, So when we talk of a man doing anything for God, or giving anything to God, I will tell you what it is like. It is like a small child going to his father and saying, Daddy, give me a sixpence to buy you a birthday present. Of course, the father does, and he's pleased with the child's present. It is all very nice and proper, but only an idiot would think that the father is sixpence to the good on the transaction. It seems to me that God wants to meet the needs of his people through his people. He most often appears to use what offerings we can give, no matter how small, and multiplies their effect. There are many examples of this in the Bible feeding the 5,000, turning water into wine, just to name a couple. I believe that if we give for the love of God, it will serve its kingdom and it will be multiplied in so many different ways. Look how the poor widow's act of faith nearly 2,000 years ago resides with us today. Um, let's have a look at Luke 6, 38. Yeah, right on, perfect. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. It will be poured in on your cup. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. God doesn't want us to be poor. He wants us to increase his assets here on earth. The faithful steward always given us and to prosper him, using his resources for his kingdom and for his glory. God doesn't want our money. He wants us. What do you think his treasure is? Let me ask you this, with all his power and all his glory, why did he give up everything to go to the cross? To get us. We are his treasure. And the more we realize that, the more we should want to make him our treasure. Now I'll admit that often can't sever my act of giving from my hope that he will do something in particular that will make a difference for me. I suppose that's natural. Call it a bit of attempted deal-making or call it anticipation. When I'm blessed to give with a gift for a heart, it always results in love for my neighbor and love for God. And who amongst us does not believe that when you're acting according to God's will, that, will you not, that you'll not be blessed somehow? It's uplifting. It's edifying. It's an adventure. To quote Pastor Chip Ingram, who has a wonderful book and a small group study called The Genius of Generosity. 
Stewardship is the path. Generosity is the adventure. Stewardship is the path. Generosity is the adventure. Why is generosity the adventure? It's a sacrificial act of love, devotion, and obedience. It's following His great commission and commandments. He's promised us that it can be accompanied with hope, joy, and anticipation of His glory. Jesus calls us to live lives of radical generosity, and He says quite clearly that it all points directly to Him. Matthew 25. They, will, they also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick in prison and did not help you? He will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. The subtle and insidious power of greed and selfishness, together with our fallen nature and inclination towards sin, seem to make radical and biblical generosity very difficult indeed. Christ himself said that it's more difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom than for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. The good news is that we don't have to do it on our own. In fact, we can't really do it on our own to serve this kingdom. The ability to be generous, the cheerful giver Paul talks about, is a gift of God. It's only by grace that we can consistent. It's part of his great gift to us by Christ's grace. You can give without loving, but you can't truly love without giving. Is that what, not what Christ calls us to do, to love? So, here's what radical generosity looks like as described by Paul. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. The grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. To me, this paints an amazing picture, an amazing picture Grace resulting in overflowing joy, urgent pleading for the privilege of sharing, all in the midst of extreme poverty. Now, here's how Paul describes God's gift of grace as it applies to generosity. Remember this whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you decide in your heart to give. Not reluctantly, not in repulsion, for God loves a cheerful gift. And God is also able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things and at all times, having all you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their lives to the poor, their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. The harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but it's also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God because of the service which you have proved yourself, by which you have proved yourselves, 
Others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. So what is the indescribable gift? I believe it's his surpassing grace. And how is that surpassing grace described here? The generosity of Sharon resulting in overflowing, overflowing expressions of thanks, not to the Ephesian elders, but to God. Now I've seen commentary that says that this indescribable gift is Christ or, or the grace of God. But to me, Paul, Paul is clearly saying that generosity itself is the indescribable gift. Either way, I suppose there's not much difference. But the way the passage speaks to me is that Paul is saying, here's what you get to do. Here's the indescribable gift. Overflowing joy and the desire for radical generosity. You know, I find that I often long for the heart of a child when it comes to matters of faith. Heart less blemished by the tree of knowledge of good and evil. I suspect that we almost sometimes long for such a simple and genuine ability to love and trust. And I feel the same way in respect to generosity. Not to be impulsively driven by sentiment, but rather drawn to generosity through the love of something much bigger than myself. I'd like to show you a video that I stumbled across during my journey towards my talk this morning. I can get sentimental when I watch it, so that's why I thought it would be I suppose it's made to be somewhat sentimental. But let me just set this up for you. In my mind's eye, I see each child in this video as a representation of my spiritual suffering. And I see the parent in the video as God the Father. I just point out the overflowing joy for both the child and the parents as the act of play out. 